make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast and founder of the Entertainment Business School. I am stoked to be here today with my awesome special guests, Mark and Anna Cassidy. They're a retired Yay! <laughs> They're a retired military family of the US Air Force and a filmmaking team from Nashville, Tennessee. Together, they've written numerous award-winning screenplays. Mark has directed, produced both corporate commercials and short films, and Anna has authored over 30 feature screenplays and produced several short films. They're currently contracted on two romantic comedies with MPCA, and their current thriller horror film, The Benefactor, is starring Malcolm McDowell with David Carson directing and Mark and Anna producing. Their buddy comedy script is in development with a UK production team and is set to start filming late 2022. Anna has her master's in screenwriting certificate from UCLA and has been in the forefront of creating local film opportunities with Mark to hire more women, both in front of and behind the camera. Mark is also an accomplished Broadway musician and stage director and hires military veteran talent to act or take on vital behind the camera rolls. Welcome, Mark and Anna. Hey, howdy. Hello, thank you for Hello. having us. Thank you, yes. I'm so happy that you're here and I want to thank you both for your service. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. No, I, I deeply, profoundly appreciate you being here with all of your amazing talents and interests. <laughs> um, and I want to start by just finding out more about you, how you met, how you got started co-writing together. Oh, wow. Um, it's always an interesting story because um, I was um, I was active duty military at the time, spent 21 years in. I was in the space program. So there was this uh, opportunity that I had to uh, go to Alaska out of all places to actually turn over one of the Air National Guard units into a space command unit. It was a missile warning and space surveillance uh, radar site. So I was headed up there and um, I did this part-time you know I was still doing the entertainment industry stuff I did uh, you know uh, some stuff with the tops and blue entertainment group in the Air Force and um, I got to Alaska and you know a lot of people kind of heard about my interest and started talking about it and I had a friend of mine approach me and says hey um, I got to introduce you to this lady friend of mine who just happens to be a screenwriter and I kind of gawk, and I'm like, a screenwriter in the middle of frozen tundra, Alaska? You have I'm to, like, no, there's not a screenwriter. You have to understand how remote we were. 
We were yeah. 25 miles from the gas station. We oh, were 100 yeah. miles from civilization. Like, like to go to a movie theater was 100 miles away. Yeah. I mean, it, it was that isolated. You had to put like <laughs> gas cans on the top of your SUV to make sure you made oh, it to the next house. How far the gas station it, it was. It really was 25 miles. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was an experience. I I don't recommend living there. Living <laughs> there, great experience. You guys will love it. Yeah. So long story short introduced me to Anna and um, we hit it off immediately as, as friends and we started um, meeting at the one local tiny bar that was in the area like on a Wednesday night we're like hey every Wednesday let's get together we got nothing else to do and we'll talk about film and uh, we realized we, we both had, all and she was already writing were you already writing at that at that time yes Mark had a short film already done called the art of the saber yeah. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when I met Mark, he's like, "Look at my phone. Here's my, you know, here's my, <laughs> here's short, my film. short film." And so he had a short film. I had done a feature in 2005. I was um, first AD, and um, and other things as well because it was a very low budget feature. And um, anyway, so that's what prompted me to go to screenwriting school. So I had been because uh, I really liked the writing part. Not that I didn't like the directing, but like I'm like, wow. I can do this from my home in Alaska. Mm. I can go and, and it, have it be 40 below and I can write and, you know, and do what I need to do and turn out my scripts and everything like that. You heard the 40 below part, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, God. <laughs> not human living conditions. It's too cold to go outside for yeah. six months. I can stay in. Yeah, I guess unless you're a polar bear, huh? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I'd like to add to that, too, to be fair. She was actually writing longer than I was and she was way better at it than I was too so I can publicly admit that when we first met um there was no doubt uh, she taught me a lot you know now that we've been together for so long about writing yeah you know it was I was really dove into the the producing slash um directing side of when I was doing the corporate commercials and stuff like that it was a lot of fun I enjoyed the heck out of that but you know I was like sure I had all these ideas in my head but I wasn't a master of putting it down on paper and then um, I think Anna looked at one thing I wrote the first time I wrote something. And she's like, oh, this is nice. Let's talk about it. So, you know, she was really, <laughs> I was like, oh, great. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's your first time. So you guys are meeting on Wednesday nights at a cafe in remote Alaska, just exploring your love of film together. How did this evolve? Yeah. You know, it, it 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 was like that. You know, it 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 evolved to the point where you know we, we kept meeting and realized that wow, we really have some cool interests together, especially with both of our our life ventures. Like you know, I started out as a professional musician, and Anna also was a musician as well. And then you know, there was a whole lot of similarities there. Um, and then when we started diving into the filming, we we found out that the way we think and how we approach the entertainment industry was a lot alike. And that's really hard to find not only in people you work with in the industry, but let alone a writing partner when you decide, hey, let's do our first screenplay together. You want to try our first screenplay together. And we did that, and it was our very first project, and it was called Rapture. And um, I don't, did we ever finish that screenplay? I don't yeah. think we ever finished it. Yeah. But it was our first project together. It was awful. Um, but, but you still have the notebook. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We actually, I think, I think we actually tore it out like a couple weekends ago, and we we're like, "Oh my god, what were we thinking?" <laughs> you, know, and, you know, you go back and you're like, "Oh my god, I yeah. don't know what the hell I was doing." Um, 
but uh, so we kept meeting and we kept going, and uh, then it ended up. Um, um, I had to unfortunately, you know, the U.S. government doesn't pay attention to my request of staying uh, with someone that I just met. Uh, they said no, and you're going to go to New York. They had to head over to the Air Force Research Laboratory over there. So I actually left New York, uh, and that was kind of hard because we had now developed this great working relationship. Um, you know, and I was too shy; I didn't tell her I liked her at the time. So. Um, uh, we actually ended up splitting, and then uh, you for, know, for like two or three years. Two or three years. Like, we were Facebook friends, but nothing really more than that. I had written a short film to cope with um, a personal thing with my brother and and my dad, and um, so I sent Mark that short, and he wanted to film it, and he started auditioning people for it, and um, then nothing became of it, and we kind of lost contact for a while. And Anna, you were still in Alaska? I was still in Alaska. I stayed in Alaska for 13 years. You were in Alaska for 13 years. What were you thinking during this like split period? Did you miss him? Did you miss the Wednesday nights? Yeah, oh, yeah, well, totally. yeah, yeah. Mark and I hit it off so well, and he was my best friend up there. I feel like it's so rare. It's hard to find those people that you really hit it off well like that, you know? Right. Like one one oh, every years yeah. if you're lucky. Right. Oh yeah, I was a lost puppy dog in New York. It sucked. Yeah. So. <laughs> and um, so I had a friend who was working on a script in Ohio because I'm from Ohio near Cleveland, and um, so my friend called me up and he said, "Hey, do you want to come home and help me work on the script?" And I'm like, "Absolutely. I am done with Alaska. It has lost its luster. Thirteen years is like." 15 years too long and just get me out of here. And so I went and I was working on. Trying to fall out. Yeah, it was fall trying out. to fall out. I, I'm done. And so I left and wound up in Ohio, brought, brought the kids, brought two bunnies and um, two suitcases and thought it was just going to be a temporary thing. And it wasn't. I wound up staying. And then uh, I found out she was in Ohio through just a normal Facebook connection and we were talking. And I said, well, I have to go on a business trip to Ohio at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base out there and one of the naval facilities out there as well. So I was like, if, you know, how far? And she's like, I'm three hours away. So I was like, oh, my God, we, we have to meet. You know, I'll, I'll drive up to you if you want to. Oh, she's like, I'll drive down to you. I said, well, I said, let's split it. So an hour and a half each way. So we met in the middle of nowhere, Ohio at an Apple's beach. And I was like, yeah, this looks familiar. This is about Alaska. Like, uh, it was like old hat. We're like, oh, yeah, we're used to this. It's not, it's not a big thing. But uh, long story short, um, I didn't want to lose my connection again. So uh, I asked her out. So, And then here we are today. And here we are. And we kind of grew from there. And then she ended up moving to yeah. New York with me. And um, yeah. so dove was, into the entertainment. That was 2011. Yeah. And then I moved to New York in 2012. And we got married in 2013. Oh, that's amazing. So, How did your writing evolve? What did you fall in love with writing together? Well, you, you know, that, that was really kind of, um, it, it, was, it kind of fell into place real quick. I was actually kind of surprised. Well, not actually too surprised because, like Anna said, we hit it off so well together. And one of the first things that we decided to do was to actually shoot her short film that she wrote. I loved it. It was, you know, the title of it was Legacy. It was such a great, powerful story in nine minutes. Wow. And it was incredibly what was it just, about? 
an emotional story. And it, it, you know, I'll, I'll let her explain it since it's actually, you know, based on her dad. So, um, so my brother uh, died in 1970. My older brother. Um, he was two days old, and he um, he died of hyaline membrane disease. And so my dad had a lot of regrets. He was a young parent. It was his first kid. He um, had married my mom because she was pregnant. Um, and there was a lot of, he wasn't there for the delivery. He was never able to hold his son. There was a lot of regret. And I always kind of grew up in my brother's shadow because I, my dad always wanted a boy and made it clear that he always wanted a boy and he never had that connection. I mean, not, not that my dad isn't a good dad, but, you know, I, I learned how to do work on cars when I was a kid. You know, I have trade, you know, changed my brakes and changed the tires and, you know, changed my oil and done car maintenance and things like that because my dad was in the car. And so my dad did everything he could to make me as much of a son as he, as he could. And um, anyway, so one day it was my brother's 40th birthday and my dad went to the grave site and he saw a guy um, underneath a tree over on off to the side and the guy was drunk. And just beer cans were all over the place. And the guy was drunk underneath the tree. And my dad is trying to have this emotional moment with his son, his only son, and, you know, talk to him on his birthday. And this drunk guy just kept interrupting, just kept interrupting. And my dad was, you know, just getting more and more angry because he wasn't able to grieve the way that he needed to grieve. And that, so the drunk guy gets up and he walks away. And my dad sees that there's a beer can over there underneath the tree and my dad is just livid you know he didn't grieve the way he wanted to he couldn't have the experience with the son that he wanted to and now here's this drunk guy leaving beer cans in the in the yard at the cemetery and he was just irritated and pissed off and he goes over there and he storms over there and he sees the beer can and it's sitting on um this little grave and it's, it's so just soul crushing because in this cemetery in Ohio it is all infants hmm. and so they're all these little like almost like license plate sized markers markers yeah. that are flat in the ground and it's just hundreds and thousands of infant graves and uh, so my dad goes and he picks up this beer can that's sitting down there and he realizes that it's sitting on a grave and then he realizes that the beer can is full and he looks at um, the headstone and he realizes that that guy was having a beer with his kid on the kid's 21st birthday. Oh, and so we, we ended up, sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, really amazing. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it, it was, so, it was a powerful story. And, and, and my dad broke down right. about it. And it was such a profound moment that I thought that would really translate to film. And what? so we talked to him and he said, you know, and honest said, hey, you know, we want to put this in, in a film because it's such an incredible, and he, he was honored. He said, oh, yeah, I would love you guys to do it. So we did it. We filmed it up in uh, New York, in, in, in central New York. Uh, we flew some actors in. Uh, we got a DP in. We, we filmed it. And, you know, it's literally just the conversation. That's all it is. The film is just this conversation at the gravesite. And 
when we ended up submitting it to Film Fest to see how it did, um, we were just amazed at the response of it. Um, it got like 16 awards out of the 22 festivals that we submitted to. Um, so it was really, I think the hardest part of that whole thing is there was a festival in Ohio that her dad showed up to, and it was the first time he ever saw the film. (gasps) (laughs) So that was an emotional, incredibly rough festival to attend. And it was, it was kind of cool because I was sitting next to him and uh, he just, he got done watching it. The credits rolled. He didn't say a single word. He just grabbed my knee and he squeezed it and he stood up and he walked out of the room. And uh, it was just, it was, it was so, it was such an amazing experience. So we actually, we actually have to have that. And I mean, if you ever want to stay, I'd be glad to send you the link for it. Oh yeah. I mean, I hundred percent um, would love to see that. That sounds incredible. And yeah, it's, and, it's such a, I mean, I'm just feeling what the story that you've shared and the humanity around it and how we all can make these assumptions and then get emotionally set off by the assumptions that we make. And we have no idea what someone else's experiences or what they're going through. And then there was that kind of realization where I guess it was actually seeing the date on the headstone where he knew, oh my God. Right. That was the theme of it, along with the fact that you often don't hear a lot of people talk about how fathers grieve. Mm. And we always hear about, and, and rightfully so, look, we always hear about the mother because she had to go through the birthing process. There's a strong connection. Right. You she always feel it. Baby, right? And, you know, yes. there's, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of talk about how dads deal with those emotions about losing a child or anything, because they're the dads, they got to be there for the mom and they got to hold everything together and they often Especially of that generation as well. That, yeah, that's yeah, that generation. a different generation. Right. Nowadays, it's a lot more accepting. It's a lot more easier for guys to talk. But in that generation, and go to therapy and things like that. It wasn't. Yeah. You know, you know, a lot of us who who have the older generation parents like that, they were very stoic with their emotions. Especially dads, they were like, oh, burr. you know, so they didn't talk a lot. So it was very important for us to to show that, and I think that really resonated with a lot of people. When we had that kind of success with that, we kind of looked back and said, wow, we, we could do this. Like, we, we could really start creating these stories and start having a lot of fun with this. And um, so we just started hunkering down and started writing and just kept writing and kept writing. And it was, we just kept coming up with story ideas. We had a bunch of ideas on the wall. We just kept going and going. And we started out with a passion of, we started out with comedies. And so on a strong point are comedies. My strong points are sci-fi and drama. And and horror. I'm really and, good at Yeah, well, both comedy people are good at horror. So um, <laughs> <laughs> because once you're done laughing, you want to rip people's heads off. So, <laughs> horror is how we really feel about the entertainment business sometimes. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we started out with, with, with uh, you know, a couple of buddy comedies and um, – it worked out well, and before, I mean, I, I, honestly, even out a very key part here into her build-up to success was she had something happen before her and I really started diving into that. Oh, yeah. And that was fresh out of UCLA. Right. So oh, I was doing, oh. I did, um, I did that really awful independent feature film in 2005, and it was enough to make me go, I have found a direction in my life. You know, I want to write screenplays. I, I want to do this. 
And so I went to the UCLA. I finished up my bachelor's degree. I needed two classes. So I took my library class online and I took an introduction to film because all I had were two electives left to get my political science degree. So I finished that up. And then the following, like that fall, fall of 2005, I went to um, UCLA online with their pre-professional program, which is a grad level screenwriting program. And it's just the screenwriting part, just the workshop part. Um, at the time, yes, I, they did, I recommend it to my students today. Yeah, it's, it's really great. The, the funny thing is, is that we didn't have the Zoom part of it. We just, we were all text, which goes to show how long ago it was. Um, so we would just type, you know, oh, for me, they really liked your script. You know, I had a problem with page 15 or whatever, you know. And, um, but we workshopped it. And I did two scripts that that year. One was the, over the first two quarters. And then for the third quarter, um, we did a second script. And that, that first script was absolute trash. Um, but the second script... <laughs> Like no matter how many times I revisit it, there's just no way to fix it. I just put it back in there. Um, it's so hard when they're like that. I got a few like that. I know it. I know it. Yeah. So, but the second script um, did really well. I polished it and um, I got it out there. And I got it to one of the producers who had given us a hundred dollars over eBay to help fund that original film that we did. You're really <laughs> trying to show your, your eBay age now. <laughs> That's rad. I love that. So, so it's going to get worse. So one time <laughs> I was on uh, MySpace. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I said that aloud. I was talking to a friend of mine um, on MySpace and she told me that she was talking to Blake Snyder on the regular and that he was mentoring her and I'm like well I would love to be mentored you know especially being in Alaska and not living in LA and being out of the element that a mentor would be really you know I would love to have him mentor me and so she's like well you know reach out so I reached out to him and Blake Snyder you know, whether you believe in Save the Cat or you are anti-Save the Cat or whatever, he still is a nice guy. He's still he was good. a good guy. Yeah. He, was, he was good to me. And we talked on the phone and he started mentoring me. And so when that guy who um, really that I gave my script to, because he was the one person in Hollywood that I knew, he said he wanted to option my script. And I, so I called Blake Snyder up and I said, what do I do? And he said, you contact my manager. And so I contacted his manager and went into development on a $20 million budget screenplay right out of um, UCLA. And then about six months later, Up in the Air was announced, which was a similar premise, but not the same. That was more of a romantic drama, and mine was definitely a romantic comedy, but the two characters had the same job of firing people. And so the plug got pulled. And um, Kaya said that we were going to talk about biggest mistakes. And one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made was that I didn't have a second script. Mm. Because you were fresh out of UCLA. Because I was fresh yeah. out of UCLA. Yeah. Yeah. And I had you wouldn't have your portfolio yet. Yeah. Right. And so, What's a portfolio? <laughs> so when that came, everybody said, well, we'd love to help you because you're obviously a good writer. What else do you have? And the answer was nothing. Oh, my gosh. And so I had all these doors that were open to me and I didn't have the product to, to put out there. 
So that was one thing that we decided, you know, when I heard that story, when she told me that, it was one thing we decided that, hey, before we attack this industry, let's get our portfolio established. So we wrote a lot of scripts. We had had a good um, uh, trusted friend that who was a professional reader for all the studios for Fox, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and he's still one of our trusted readers today. He's a great guy. And um, I'll actually tell you who he is. You can actually look him up. You can actually use him. He's awesome. Please. Um, yeah, it, his name is Scott Mullen, M-U-L-L-E-N. And he's a fantastic guy. Now, he does charge the same thing the studios pay him to read scripts. And it's 60 bucks. And that's it. It's like taking him out to dinner. So we look at it as if we ever need notes from him, we just take (laughs) him out to dinner. And his notes can be one page or 50 pages, and it's still the same price. And he's just a wonderful guy. And he's been so powerful in getting our stories right for us. Oh, um, but anyway, so having a sounding board like that is just so huge because a lot of times, especially, you know, early screenwriters anyway, it's hard to know where the bar is. You know, where's the pro level? Where's the bar? Where are the things right. that I'm yeah. not seeing? So it sounds like you found someone who could support you with that process. Yeah. And we don't use them on every single script we, we do. But we, if we have a huge project that we want to make sure we make the right impression with, we'll bounce it off him and say, hey, we've glared at this for three months. Find the holes. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he's 100%. really good at that, and he'll be like, "Hey, this, 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 this." Otherwise, man, it looks. And you guys good. have each other too, so you also I, have probably this, you know, container of your right. relationship where you can see what you're working on together. Right. Yeah. So I, I just dropped Scott's uh, address or email address in the notes, um, but Scott has been great for like we had a problem on the benefactor early on in like the second draft or something like that. Mark's like, uh, I, I don't know, and I'm like this is great. This is one of the best scripts I've ever written. What do you mean you don't know? You know, we, we did the outline together. We did the one sheet together. We did this and that together. And we did all this stuff together. And now you're going, you don't like the script. So I'm like, let's get it. Scott. Scott's going to tell you that you're wrong. So, so, so she was like, she's like, this is scary. I'm like, this isn't scary at all. This is like, I'm not even like frightened out of my chair. This is like baby stuff. And she's like, no, it's not. It's great. Cause she's like, yeah, well, my friend Scott's going to show you. And it was so hilarious. So Scott writes an email back like within 24 hours. He has super quick turnaround times. He writes an email back in his first line. Yeah, not scary. Not scary. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, shut up. No. Um, but, um, it, but, and then Scott was able to look at it and go, hey, you know, I know it's only your first draft or second draft or whatever. And he said, but, you know, what your biggest problem in this script is, is your um, main character's dramatic need. And you really need to bring that to the forefront. And like, I mean, I think we would have gotten there eventually if we would have worked at it on our own, but Scott just gave us the right... Got it there quicker. He got it there quicker. Yeah. He got it there probably two drafts quicker than we would have on our own. So we, we created our portfolio. We got, you know, we knew we had a cool niche for comedies and horror scripts. And, um, and then once we... You were in New York? Then, yeah. This yeah. is in New York. This is in New York. And then, you know, once we got about... Um, I would say a good solid six to seven screenplays. We felt comfortable at that point going out and start querying, start attacking the industry uh, the, the, the way we did. Right. Because I had written without Mark with a different writing partner on a couple different scripts. So I probably had done like six or eight scripts with that other writing partner. I had done a, some free work for a producer who screwed me over. 
So I had a, I had about 10, well, 10 scripts that I couldn't use because I was no longer with that writing partner or was no longer with that producer. So it wasn't okay. like we didn't do anything for that time. It was right. just, yeah. yeah. So that's the big scope of it, should I say. Tell me what you, tell me what you love writing. Because it sounds like you have a few different things that uh, are different genres that you're really passionate about. Is there any themes that tie them together? We we have we have really grown, especially over the last I'd say three or four years, where our two biggest strong points right now are the romantic comedy type of uh, films for MPCA Hallmark type stuff and and regular big budget rom coms. We love writing those, and then horror has really really grown on us, and um, you know the benefactor script was literally a We'll talk about it later. I'm sure you probably have it referenced in social media. That was birthed from social media. And this is a great kind of story how that came, came I don't about. know that story of how yeah. that came about. Yeah, Can that, we dive into that yeah, a little so, bit? Yeah. So um, that one was when, when we got into doing horror films, you know, we, we kind of came up with the idea for The Benefactor in New York. Right. We wanted to do something that we could film ourselves. Yeah. We were like, hey, you know, we've done the successful short films. We did a 48-hour film festival, which never done one. Those are crazy. Oh, um, the one where I you like, write the film and shoot it in the 48 yeah, hours. You, you yeah, you have to write, yeah, yeah. shoot, edit, post, create 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And this is why I have no hair. So um, if you want to lose your hair, go on the 48-hour film fest plan. It's excellent. It's also a great weight loss uh, plan as well. Um, so... <laughs> But you know, we wanted to do a project locally, so we we had this crazy local art house in my hometown, and it was a mansion that was built in like eighteen or actually yeah, it was like eighteen twenties early mansion that was built, creepy as all hell. But they turned it into a community art center, and it still had the creepy stone on the interior, and, and some of the floors were all the floors were like this, you know. Floor. You go look at art. In, in portraits and you're like this looking at oh, art. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's nice. Um, so Anna and I started coming up with this idea when we were walking through, uh, looking at some of our daughter's stuff that made it into the community center for school. And um, we started talking about it, talking about it. And uh, we were like, hey, you know, um, wouldn't this be cool to create this story about uh, a well-known painter who gives up painting after the death of his wife? And he just, he can't paint anymore. And he loses his skill set and he loses everything. And he has to fight to, and his daughter's trying to push him to back to painting. So we came up with the idea and we, we, we kind of just decided, she's like, well, you know, and I was like, well, how do you want, how, how do we want this to go? And this is that in part in the French, but this is the fuck it script that everyone talks about, right? Yeah. Talk about that one script that you're like, you're going to put your heart you're soul into it. No one's ever going to make it, but it's going to be a lot of fun to write. And it's going to be a great writing tip. And it's going to be a wonderful writing Hmm. So. Those are some of my favorite scripts that I've ever read, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so, as a, as so, a development exec, we could never make them, but I was always like, I want to carve out a little time to read this. Right. Yeah. right. So, um, Anna and I worked really hard on it. We created, and then on Twitter one day, there was this company that was uh, tweeting they said, hey, we're looking for projects in the 5 to $15 million range. Do you have anything you feel that might fit that? 
So I don't know, like, well, maybe our script will fit it. But you know what? We don't know nothing about this company. We don't know who they are. Let's just throw it at them for the hell of it. Who cares? We threw Murder Hill at them, which was our first horror feature. Yeah, that was our slasher. Which got us the meeting, and we were going to L.A. like two weeks later. So they read the script. We go to the meeting, and they're like, well, okay, so we really like Murder Hill. We want to make it. We're going to put it on our slate and this and that. And they said, well, what else do you have? And we're like, oh. Well, we've got this one, that one, this one, this one, this one, and this one, and this one. And they said, okay, well, give us all of those. We'll read them, and we'll let you know what we think. And they introduced us to David Carson. So, yeah. So, now, if you don't know who David Carson is, David Carson is a a well-known uh, Star Trek director. He did Star Trek Generations. Yeah. And he did 30-plus episodes of, of the television series. Um Next generation. Next generation. Next generation. So he knew all of the awesome actors in there and, and, and all of those folks. And so I kind of had a fanboy moment when he walked into the room. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I know who he is, I know who he is. And um, so he sat down and he's like, um, well, you know, I, as fun and as cool as your Murder Hill thing was, and I'm looking to do a horror film, he goes, I, I would. Uh, I would definitely like to do the benefactor, and we were blown away. We we're like, really? "Oh my God, really? <laughs> that weird one?" Like, he goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, "He's like, it's probably one of the most unique scripts I've read in a long time, and it's so out there." He goes, "That's what makes it so perfect." So it really was. And this is your fuck it. This is your fuck it script, this, and you're this going, is our fuck it script. We're, we're almost in tears because we're like. We just threw our heart and soul in it, oh. and we're like, no one's ever going to make this book set. Right. And he was like, I'm going to do it. And we're like, what? <laughs> so he signs on board with it, and he looked at us, and he said, I have the perfect person to read. And I can tell you guys this in a closed environment, although we did not release this publicly. Is, is this going to be public? Well. It's on the podcast, though. So whatever. Oh, you it is on the podcast. Okay. Okay. But I think we're safe to say it now. What do you think? No? Okay, so we're going to skip that part. <laughs> we'll tell you guys privately in a Stay conversation. tuned when you follow them on Twitter for their big so, announcement. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, um, it eventually got to, he felt Malcolm McDowell would be really good for the role because Malcolm has this really, and if you've ever seen Malcolm McDowell in a film, he does a wonderful. He does do a wonderful job. This, this split personality type of guy that really, kind of this role really needed that deep down emotion, emotional kind of tuck. Right. And we had a friend read the script. Like Malcolm had gotten the script but hadn't read it yet. It was like in a very small window because he like got it on a Friday and on Monday he was asking David if he could be in it. So but we were talking with a friend of ours who had just finished the script and she said, you know who would be perfect for this? Malcolm McDowell. And we went, yes, he would be perfect for that. <laughs> You know, and, and it, you know, when you think of, when you read the script with him in mind, I mean, it, it just, he will just bring an extra level yeah. to that. It, it'll pop right out of the page. Yeah, and it, then um, we got notified that he, he called David immediately and David got us on the phone and said, congratulations. He absolutely loved the script. Holy he, shit. He wants to be in the role. And not only does he want to be in the role, he has an idea who he wants to play his wife. Who just happens to be an A-lister uh, actress, of course, and um, we are super excited to when we finally finalize that to announce that because that's a huge, yes. huge thing. 
But really what all of this stuff, <laughs> nice Rhino, like the Star Trek doll, uh, that's awesome. Um, so what was really cool about that whole experience is you get a point in your writing journey and your career wondering if you're doing it right on the page. If, if, if everything that's, you know, all these passes you hear about and all these letdowns you feel and, and all this company pass, this company pass, this producer pass, you're like, Jesus, are we doing this right? And to have someone of that caliber to pick it up and say, we love it, it was a huge validation. Um, and that validation really gave us the energy we needed to go forward and say, okay, this is the direction we want to take our stories. So it sounds like that gave you momentum. It really gave us momentum yes. and it really helped us a, a, a lot. And now, you know, um, the benefactor, when it got announced in deadline, we had a huge upswing. And then, of course, COVID hit, uh, destroyed any upswing we had on it. We literally tanked. But the great news is it has picked back up again this year. Good. And now it's in a lot of great places. Um, and uh, we're getting very close to, to, to getting it together uh, the, way, the way we need it. So. Oh, my gosh. You're going to have to keep us posted. That's so exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, bringing in that right director will attract the right talent. And it sounds like that is what has happened for the benefactor. Talk yeah, to me yeah, about yeah. your talk to me about your journey in this time. You know, you're not living in Los Angeles. You're screenwriters who live anywhere you want because now you're in Nashville, Tennessee. What has your journey been like? being outside of LA, being, you know, really global as you are, and also with representation because of that. Go ahead, can I go first? Um, I, think, I think had we moved to LA, had we lived in LA, had I gone to LA right out of, you know, UCLA and moved there and whatever, do I think my career would have gone any quicker? Absolutely. Is it still possible to make it while not living in LA? Yes. 100%. You have to put in the work in different ways than you don't have to if you live there. If you live in LA, you can go to a bar and meet somebody who's in, in the industry. You can go to all these other places and run into people and have a conversation at the laundromat and run into somebody who's in the industry and, and make your connections that way. And we have... Um, through blood, sweat, and tears found people on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, d different places like that to network. I mean, you still yep. need to network. We would fly to LA at least three, if not five times a year, you know, to go and take meetings. And one of the nice things was is that the rep that we had at the time with it, Blake Snyder got me. Um, uh, his name was Paul. And Paul would go and say, I have clients. They're going to be here for a week. Can you meet with them? And then you could go and get, we would do 14 meetings. We would do a breakfast meeting, a lunch meeting, a dinner meeting. That would be crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it mm -hmm. would be like, okay, we have one day that we're going to be in Santa Monica. So let's get all of our Santa Monica meetings done that day. Oh, definitely. And, it's always smart to do it that yeah, way. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And the dynamic really, you know, truly shifted, obviously, over the last couple of years. But you always heard that, hey, if you're not in L.A., you need to be in L.A. And I never believed in that from the get-go. I'm like, you know, no, that's wrong. It's a wrong. Yes, you have to work harder, but it's not impossible. And there are a lot of successful people who live outside of L.A. and who are happy living outside of L.A. that have been successful. 
you know, so we had to attack it with a day job. We had to attack it with not being in LA. We had to attack it with social media, made sure that every connection we, you know, we, we just met people. And one of the greatest things we also found out doing was those short films, because when we started going to film festivals, a lot of people love to be at those film festivals. And I met sales agents at film festivals that I talked to today about stuff we're working on. Like the benefactor is from a sales agent I met, you know, eight years ago at a film festival in Virginia. Mm. And he does nationwide distribution. So it's, it's amazing. Never turn down the opportunity just to meet people because you never know where it's going to lead. And I can tell you that never feel like it's impossible that you'll never be able to break in if you don't live in LA. I think that's a bunch of bull crap. I'm going to be honest and upfront about that. Yes, you do have to work a little bit harder. You do have to change the way you do business a little bit, but it is not impossible. Now, since COVID hit, Amazing. The entire industry is like, oh, yeah, anybody can break in. And it's just that yeah, we have Zoom meetings now. And all of a sudden, it's the norm, which is, it, it, is kind of entertaining to see the, 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 di- the dynamic shift in that. But take advantage. Meetings going virtual has helped a lot of us, especially with the traffic factor. Because traffic has, in L.A. is a nightmare. a lot of people. Even people living in L.A. love doing Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, like you said, they're like, I don't have to do the 405. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, great. For I the 10. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we were on a notes call a couple of weeks ago, and um, it was probably like 10 people. And they said, Oh, does, is this going to be a Zoom or just a call? And everyone was like, No, I'm still in my pajamas. Don't put this on Zoom. I don't want to Zoom. And that was the exec. Yeah. That was the exec who was still in her pajamas. She's like, I'm still in my pajamas. My hair was social media we did all these other networking opportunities outside of LA and then we would follow up with them with a couple of trips to LA and do a week networking trip and that's what we did so we would save our money and say hey you know what we we don't do on and I don't do massive vacations we're like we're going to go to LA for the week and just meet people and even if it's just meeting someone and hey we met you on Twitter we'd love to get coffee with you I think we'd have a great conversation we would just do that and meet just wonderful people. Yeah, that's really and, smart. Yep, and that's how we met. You know, a, a lot of a lot of the, uh, executives that we met, we met that way. And then just two weeks ago, we had an executive that we met that way, who we hadn't talked to, and I would say a good four or five months, almost six months. And she reached out to us recently and said, "Hey, I saw a tweet that uh, you, you you were having some uh, issues on financing." She goes, "Why don't you give me a call?" Because I, I, I have this opportunity. And I was like, wow. So you never know where your networking is going to take you. Yeah. Um, but it is always the strongest thing that you could do for your career is networking. Oh, absolutely. It's a relationships business. Yep. Right. It is a relationships and business. And have a good script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And have a bang up script. I mean, these are, yeah. the, these are the two pillars of success. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a business one-on-one approach. And a lot of people think that once you type the end that your job is done. No, that's when your job actually starts. It's true. And that's what I always tell people. As soon as you hit the end, you are just starting. And your, your, your job isn't starting at fade in. That's, that's the foundation you build for your product. That's your product. Now you got to take that product out. And uh, that's where the real work starts. And the long treks and the tears and sweat and the blood. And, you know, 
and more, blood, and more and tears, more tears. <laughs> um, you know, rejection is part of the process, but 99.9% of rejection has nothing to do with uh, you or the script itself necessarily. It could just not and be right there. You've got to remember that every no is leading to your yes. And you don't know if it's going to be five no's or 50 no's, but you just have to keep going and keep improving the work along the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Talk to, talk to me about um, advice for screenwriters. I have a lot of screenwriters li- who listen to this podcast, uh, who are even on the call today, and I'm I'm curious, you know, to have you share what you have learned, mistakes to avoid, tips that you may like to share. Yeah, we'll split that. So I'll have Anna go first, and she was. Oh, sure. the, uh, Yeah. You want to- <laughs> <laughs> I'll put her on the spot. Thank you for the spot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, I have two big things that I always say. You know, when people say, "What are the biggest?" pitfalls what what are the worst things you can do and one of which I've already covered which is you know always have more than one script you know um because it will will come to bite you and um the other one is always get it in writing so we had when we did legacy um we had some of the people on staff we never got a deal memo with and it was our own fault because we thought oh well that's our best friend and that's our other best friend. So why would we need to get deal memos with our best friend? And so when um, the director, who was a good friend of ours, went and didn't give us the script or didn't give us the footage, um, you know, we're like, okay, well, he's got some personal problems. We know he has some personal problems going on and we understand, you know, it's, it's not a priority right now. But then six months goes by, a year goes by, a year and a half goes by, and we don't have our footage. And so had we gone and gotten a deal memo that said, hey, you are the director, you are going to get us the footage in such and such time, you know, six weeks, six months, whatever. And then, um, you know, we would have had some kind of recourse. Yes. But we just had to wait until he got around to getting it to us. So those are my two big things. Um, You know, the... One of the things that I like to abide by is that I, I look at every project as a small business because technically it is. It eventually, uh-huh. it's going to be just that. And if it goes into production someday, it's going to be a small business. So take it seriously. You know, when, when you start creating your stories, when, when you start doing your scripts on that, um, you know, most screenwriters do. Most screenwriters have, we all have a passion for stories. We all have a passion to get it on, on, on the page. Um, the biggest thing that I like to tell people when it's time to get your notes, don't fall trap to feeling that you have to change something just because a particular person recommended that change. And that's really something that took a while for me to learn because I had to really learn what was really, really good for the story and if that note was truly going to make the story better, or if someone wasn't, or just changing something to change it, hmm. and it doesn't necessarily add to the story, or it doesn't really amplify your character's journey, or it doesn't really tie into what you're trying to accomplish in the third act. And so when you get your notes, use the ones that you know are going to work and drop the rest. It doesn't matter who it comes from. It doesn't matter if it comes from your best friend, a, 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 another Twitter writer you met, or someone who's been in the business for 30 plus years. I mean, we've had we've had notes from producers who've been in the business for 30 plus years. And we went back to the producer and we said, hey, we don't agree with this note because you're changing this. It's really gonna change our, our, our protag's journey by the time she hits 
that beat on that third act. She no longer has that point that we're trying to show. Right. So, you know, don't be afraid to stand up for your story. And that's, but do it professionally. There's, you know, there's a professional way to do it. There's an unprofessional way to do it. We've had notes from Scott that we haven't agreed with. Yeah. And, and even our, 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 our great reader friend who has years in experience, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, we kind of disagree with that because this is the way we actually want the story to lead. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's right or, or we're right. It just means that he's viewing it at this point. This is how he sees it. We're viewing it from our point is how we see it. So you got to kind of marry it together to find out, does it actually uh, help the story and go with it like that. Um, as far as um, representation goes, you know, when, when you're that, when you finally feel like you're ready for representation, 99.9% .9 you can't find a rep with one script. It rarely ever happens. Most of the time true. it doesn't happen. Yes. Um, you got to understand that reps are their own business. They want to rep a portfolio of products because what they're going to do is they're going to get multiple things out there for you, not just concentrate on this one. It's not advantageous for them to concentrate on one thing. But if I, as a manager, have 10 of your screenplays, uh, then I can look at where you might fit into different types of companies. Um, so when you start querying managers and you start querying representation, put your portfolio together and make sure that you have a strong representation of who you are uh, in those stories and, um, and and how you want your career to pan out with those stories. So um, those are the big things that I like to think about now in this stage of where we are in our career when, when we start going forward with stuff. We don't necessarily write the trends. Um, we had a wonderful conversation yesterday with Jeff Howard, who's, who's an amazing uh, writer. If you don't know who he is, he's, he's the awesome guy who wrote Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, I know, um, I know Jeff from Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Ouija and, and, uh, and all those great horror films. Like he, He's a phenomenal guy. He's just a great, great human being. Yeah, his and lovely look, wife is also a writer, too. Yeah, oh, is she really? yeah. Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that, that he, he brought up and he made, made a point, which is such a great point, so I want to relay that point, is don't write the trends. Because if you're writing to a trend in Hollywood right now, you're already two years behind. Because mm. those trends are already in the queue. And writers way above you who are further along in their career have already pumped out a script in seven days to fill that void. Yep. So write your original work. Because that's the original work is going to get you recognized more than the trend will. Because they're going to look at that original work and go, wow, this is a really cool story. Or they're going to look at it and go, oh, yeah, I already have 50 uh, screenplays about cats that showed up in five minutes ago. Like, I don't need yours. Right. So um, that is one thing that we learned early on, too, is not to write to that trend. And that's actually how the benefactor happened. We didn't write to that trend. We just did a crazy story. And it ended up working for us. Um, our rom-coms, we don't write to trends. Um, there are some times when you're wrapped, especially if you get into the hallmarky type of world, it's very cookie cutter, right? It's, it's very straightforward. We have a box. You, this is the way the industry is in this world of uh, Christmas rom-coms. You have to fit in that box. Uh, it's challenging, um, but uh, we actually do like writing those, even though they're kind of quirky and predictable and everybody knows what's going to happen. They're, but they're, uh, they're, they're, they're comfort yeah, they're comfort food for the soul. So in a way, they're they're kind of cute to write. Um, my, so, my parents' favorite uh, channel is Hallmark, and it, you can yeah. never underestimate the fact that it's in everybody's homes. 
it, it's it, hugely, it, it, hugely popular medium and uh, distribution channel. Now, I would say that we do have one, you know, speaking of advice, um, we have a lot of people who say, well, can you write horror? Can you write comedy? Should you write all of that? Shouldn't you just pick one genre? Sure. And, um, you know, no. I mean, yes. Is it easier? Absolutely. Then you can be known as you're the rom-com writer or you're the sci-fi writer or you know, what have you, whatever genre you pick, people are going to go, oh, well, Kaya writes really awesome sci-fi movies on the moon, and we need someone who can write a sci-fi movie on the moon, so we're going to call Kaya. And yes, that does put you in, you know, the right bracket. Or Nora Ephron, she always does, you know, the best rom-coms. And so you go, okay, well, I have a rom-com that needs help, or we need a rom-com, we're going to go to Nora Ephron. So um, does, does it create an issue a little bit? Yes, we can't. It, it is weird to market our social media for that because because yeah. you, you go sense. look it's Hallmark and then I'm killing somebody in the next post. You know, <laughs> it, is, it, it is it is awkward. It, it yeah. does create those disconnects, but you have to remember, you know, you have to write what moves you, and you have as long as you can do both well. We can do horror well, and we have comedies that have also done well, and that's kind of where we find our sweet spot. And then we also have sci-fi that we've done well because Mark has a, you know, his sci-fi, his science background is, you know. But, you know, but, yeah, it's do what your passion is. You're never wrong, ever wrong, ever wrong with doing your passion. So if your passion is straight up, I write comedies, that's what I want to be known for. Love it. Do it. Please do it because we always need good comedy. Right. And I think that's a strong point. But I don't want people to feel or have to feel the need that they need to shy away of saying, but boy, I really want to write that horror film, but you know, I'm known for my comedy. Write the horror film. Right. Even because when you put passion into your story and you write it correctly and you put that love into it, it's gonna come across and it's gonna be great. Even Stephen King did Shawshank Redemption. So if he is a horror guy can write that drama, you can write whatever you want. And, and we talked about I love his dramas. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there was someone um, in our past from not too long ago who said, you know, a manager's job is to sell you. And if they look at you and go, well, I only want you to write this one genre, then he's not doing you justice. He's not selling you. And uh, a very established writer told us one time, he goes, when it comes to representation, find the person that's right for you. And I can't tell you on the mat, you know, the couple of managers that we worked with and don't work with that anymore, we have learned that, and we want to tell all of you that finding a representation is just as important to who you end up working with that is really like you and that can work with you is one of the most important things. Just don't go out there and say, "I need a manager." Any manager will do. No, not any manager will do. You have to find a manager who has your frame of mind who understands you, who understands what you want to accomplish in this business. And what and, your work ethic is. And, and yeah, and, and, and support that. That's the manager you want to find. You want to find that team player. And look, not every manager fits a client. That's fact. And this industry will tell you time and time again, and you see it all the time. Hey, I'm no longer with this person. I'm no longer with this person. We just ended up not being a good fit. There's nothing wrong. That doesn't mean they're 
relationship ended poorly or it ended up in disaster. They just looked at each other one day and said, hey, you know what? This probably isn't going to work out the way we both expect. So it's been great working with you up to this point, but we feel someone else might be better for us. And, you know, don't be afraid to take charge of that. You are truly the only person who is in charge of your career. Your manager works for you. And if they have suggestions on what they think you should do with your career, that's great. That's a great suggestion. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. Right. 100%. Yeah. But, but you have to take charge of your career, you know, and you have to say, I see what you're saying. I appreciate, you know, whatever, but you say it's a mistake for me to do this, but I need you to let me make that mistake. Cause I really want to do it. I really <laughs> want to do it. I really yeah. want to do it my way. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that. It's like, it's like finding a good spouse, you know, to have a rep that you're really in sync with in that way. Uh, you know, I used to work for Gary Shandling and the biggest nightmare of his life was his manager and the hundred million dollar lawsuit that they got into and all of the problems that they had. And, you know, that relationship was so difficult for him. And I am certain we would have had so much more of his fantastic comedy in the world had he not had that difficult relationship in the way. And it was really hard for him to, yeah. to leave that relationship or, you know, even take his power by the time it was by the time it had gone sideways. Right. We have found really, you know, listen to your gut. Your gut's never going to be wrong. When you get that feeling that something just isn't right or I don't think this is going to work out, then go with your gut because 90% of the time it's usually correct. But, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Look, there's a lot of great people in this industry. We've met wonderful, talented, amazing mentors, um, and we're so thankful for that. So, um you know, we were not LA people who, who were finally starting to get over that hill and breaking in uh, into that. And uh, it can be done. Yeah, we had to work harder at it. But please don't give up because if you really want it, it's totally attainable. Oh, I love that so much. And then it's going to inspire a lot of people too. Listen, we, this podcast won't be complete without getting to talk about your rabbits. People don't know that I, I found you because of your rabbits. You know, I was like new to Twitter in the pandemic and scrolling through. And I'm like, who are these fantastic people with these rabbits? I've like gotten to know your rabbits through through social media, through Facebook and through Twitter and, you know, fallen in love with them and uh, your relationship with them. Talk to us about your rabbits and how they inspire you. Yeah, there are, there are, there are crazy little demon childs, as we call them, that hop around the house. Um, you know, our, just so you know, our rabbits are litter trained. Um, Kai and I were talking about that before we actually started. <laughs> um, so they're, they're nuts. Um, you know, they chew on cables. We, we gotta, we gotta bunny proof the house constantly. You know, this is this is a music room as well, so everything's bunny proof. Cables are all tied to the rails on the drum, electric drum set. Like it's, it's nuts. Um, they're look, they're they're our companions. They're they're cute as hell. Um, they're they're probably one of the most um, unique animals I think I've ever owned as pets. I never owned bunnies in my life till I met Anna. And um, they're very they're very social creatures, so they're very dependent on human interaction. So they're constantly at your feet all the time. They're buzzing around you. They'll jump up in your laps. And uh, this is our uh, squeaky Mabel, as we call her. Oh, uh, Mabel! Is she is she lion, lion head? She is a lion head, as you can see. Oh, all, she's so cute. And you right are, here. Or on the audio, you can't see her, but she has this mane, just like a lion, yeah. like a poof right around her face. Oh. Let's put her up a little bit. Oh. <laughs> Bunny cam. <laughs> so, 
So there's the bunny cam. Um, yeah, so they're, they're a lot of fun, but uh, what we love about them is, is they love to give notes. So once we print out a screenplay, there you and go. Put them to work. throw it down on the ground, they'll hop over to it, they'll actually look at it, and then they'll start eating it if they don't like it. Perfect. So um, we're like, all right, back to page one, we go. Uh, they have destroyed more notes. They have uh, chewed on more computer cables and more charging cables of iPhones. <laughs> um, to the Earbud. point where we had to get metal earbuds and metal charging cables mm-hmm. in order for them not to chew on it. Wow. Um, and they're little shits. I mean, we, we had one rabbit <laughs> who literally went into Anna's office. She's writing away. He picks up the charging cord in his teeth, looks at Anna, and Anna went, no, looks at her again and just went, I'm, and oh, it, oh. and her earbud cord right in half oh. as her earbuds are plugged in. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're little snots. Um, but you know what? They're they're that levity we need. They're fun to watch. They do crazy stuff around the house. It always makes me laugh when I see them when you post on your on your Twitter. I love seeing them. Then they're like, yeah, really they're, they're, they're they are they're basically a, a fur pain in the ass. Yeah, they're a little <laughs> comedy comedy at home. They're 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 a trip though. That's yeah. uh, I'm, I'm glad people get it get a kick out of them with like posting them. Out, so. How can our listeners follow you and find you? Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll go ahead and put our handles right here in the chat. Um, and you need to on... speak, them, speak them too for the podcast listeners. Yeah, so um, I am Mark Literally, and I'm also Mark Literally on Instagram as well. And Anna? I am Anna Literally on Twitter, and I am Anna, Anna Literally IG on Instagram. And he's Mark Literally with a K. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. You guys have been such great special guests. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at... This is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training, as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.